Well, good morning. How are you? You know, uh, when I was younger here, uh, a little tyke here at Agora Bible Fellowship, probably from the range, uh, ages between five and seven, I had these misconceptions of a lot of things that happened in church. And uh, one of the things was that you remember those offering churches, those little plastic churches you'd find, and you'd give you know, quarters and you put things in there, and, that was the, and they would put that somewhere else. But I, I didn't know where those banks went. And as a misconception, I would always think, I'm putting my money in, and they would always use these cliches and, and these sayings like, we're going to give back to the Lord now. And so, you know, my mom and dad would give me some change to put in there. And, and every time they'd say that, I would look around for the Lord. Because I'm like, well, where is he coming? Or what's, what's he going? Because I'm just a kid trying to, to gather this in, all this information. And then when I sit in this big service here with adults, and I sit by my parents, and the, 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 the bigger plates go by, and they say this again. Yeah, we're gonna, this is our time to give back to the Lord. And I'm just looking around, just waiting. Never asking my parents because I didn't want to ask embarrassing questions or I'm like, well, I just assumed. And so I, I started to think and in my own head conjure up my own ideas of what happens. I said, well, since Jesus doesn't come incarnate and take the money because he needs it. Um, <laughs> stay with me, everyone. Stay with me. <laughs> I thought, and literally because I, 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 was, I was a little kid when I was here, I thought this exit door right here, they would take all the money as soon as we were gone, and they would put it in one little offering plate and wait uh, for God to come and take it. They don't do that. <laughs> and I realized that until I told my parents, I'm like, hey, they're the, because I saw all the ushers go in the accident. I'm like, well, we're, I'm waiting for Jesus to come still. And that was just a misconception I had. You know, when, when I saw baptisms here, um, the baptismal used to be behind here, if you remember, some of you. And um, my parents would never let me on stage, just in case. Um, but every time I saw a baptismal, when they say uh, baptism, every time they said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, go down, I thought in my head, as a kid, as a little tyke, that for some weird reason, or some reason, that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that person would actually see them in the water. And because I'm a kid, I'm just wondering, like, what happens in the name of the Father? So, and I'm thinking, okay, if I ever get baptized, I'm bringing goggles. Because I want to see him. I want to make sure that he's there. And all these, the three, Trinity, whoa, got it. And when they come up, they're always smiling, so I'm thinking that. But even the Lamb of God, hearing the Lamb of God growing up, and you hear it in songs, and you hear the teacher saying, well, he's the Lamb of God. And in my head, as a five- to seven-year-old, Lamb of God, so I'm thinking what God looks like as a lamb. <laughs> because I couldn't put the two together. But as I would grow up, I began, oh, I got it. I got it. I know a big misconception for me, too, was Satan. Who, what, what, who was he? Was he? Has he always been there? And there's, there's still a misconception out there. Who created him? Couldn't be God, right? And you have all these misconceptions, even today, of what Satan is. Maybe you've heard the story about a church that encountered him incarnate. It said a few minutes before the church service started, the congregation was sitting in their pews and talking. Suddenly, Satan appeared at the front of the church. Everyone started screaming and running for the back entrance, trampling each other in a frantic effort to get away from this evil incarnate. Soon the church was empty except for one elderly man who sat calmly in his pew without moving, seemingly obvious to the fact that God's ultimate enemy was in his presence. So Satan walked up to the man and said, do you know who I am? 
The man replied, yep, sure do. Aren't you afraid of me, Satan asked. Nope, sure ain't, said the man. Did you know that I can cause you profound affliction, horrifying agony for all eternity, persisted Satan? Yep, was the calm reply. And you're still not afraid, Satan asked. Nope, said the man. More than a little perturbed, Satan asked, why aren't you afraid of me? The man calmly replied, been married to your sister for 48 years. (laughs) (laughs) Misconceptions. Misconceptions of Satan. So I grew up (laughs) and had a different impression. And I understand this now. You know, we are in the series of experiencing Jesus. And the message this morning is simply this. That when you experience Jesus, you will encounter his opponent. So we better understand what this opponent is about to do. What this opponent is doing presently. What this opponent, how this opponent came into the picture in the first place. And I believe the passages that we're going to go through today are going to give you a little bit more about who this opponent is. But I know this. Every time I experience Jesus in a sense of I want to grow stronger and I want to know him more or I want to serve him more, it, it never fails that I always come and encounter his opponent. Do you feel that way too? Doesn't it feel like every time, Lord, I'm going to start praying and, and, and you start almost feeling you're getting closer and growing with the Lord and this opponent keeps on getting in your face just to cast every doubt in your mind that God really cares about you or about what's going on because I know this when you experience Jesus you will encounter his opponent Ephesians 6 17 says this you will encounter flaming arrows from the evil one are you you getting that picture in your head not just any arrow flaming arrows from the evil one and Paul was setting us up not to say not if those flaming arrows come but when those arrows come and our passages of scripture mentions this morning We'll mention two places these arrows are aiming toward. And I'm going to actually give you four arrows, but, I, but there's two places in general where these flaming arrows are pointing to this morning. And I want you to see in Matthew chapter 12, turn there with me, verse 22, starting there. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse Are you there? Say yes. Yes. Okay, here we go. In Spanish first. Then, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could talk and see. Both talk and see. Verse 23. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And 26, it says, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How, can, how then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. 
But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Talking of the power of Satan, but also talking about his power. You see, I believe the first place the arrows are aiming is the supernatural world. Did you catch that in verse 22? Did you catch that? They brought, then they brought him a demon-possessed man. And what was he lacking? You tell me. What was he? He was blind and he was mute. We have to understand something. We, we think, when we think possession, we always think, oh, that happened in the New Testament. Oh, that happened in the Old Testament. My friends, there is a battle for your soul. Did you know that? There's a battle for your soul. Who will or what will dwell there? And my friends, I'm telling you right now, the battle is supernatural. I'm wondering if it would freak us out if we put on glasses that could let us see a spiritual dimension. Do you think we'd be freaked out? And would you think, too, that we would say, say, God, thank you so much, because he probably has some things in our way. He says, I'm not going to let this happen to you. So you'd probably be encouraged, and then you'd go home, and you would just lock yourself in a closet because you'd be so afraid. But the supernatural world, there is a battle for your soul. And guess what? Not only is there a battle for your soul, there's a battle for every soul that you come in contact that doesn't know Christ. There's a battle. Is that, am I saying that those people are, are either going to be demon-possessed? No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying no matter what, Satan and supernaturally and God supernaturally are battling for who will dwell in your heart. Isn't it interesting when it says in verse 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man. Who's they? Well, if you look through the first part of chapter 12, you understand it's the Pharisees. They're testing him in this time. And understand that they're bringing this demon-possessed man to Jesus. And you're like thinking in my head as I started studying this, why aren't they casting this person, this demon out? Why aren't they doing that? Well, well, maybe they didn't know how to do it back there. And you know, yes, they did. You know, in Acts, it talks about Jewish believers who were going around casting out demons. It's not like they didn't know what to do. But for some reason, they hadn't cast out this demon. It's interesting that the power, he, Satan is so powerful when he possesses, he can take away the physical actions of someone. He can maim them if they will. That's how powerful Satan is. There's a question that came up, and, and just keep your finger there. Would you turn to Ephesians 1, 13 really quickly? Keep your finger there. There's a question I get often when it comes to talking of possession. Ephesians chapter 1, and look at verse 13. And the question is this. Is it possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed? Now, when I would say this to the youth all the time, I, I would, especially speaking to the youth, they'd say, and it's the first question that comes to my mind. Is it possible? I, I, should I be afraid of that, that Satan can actually come and possess me? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and here it is. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So how were you included in Christ? You heard what? The word of truth and the gospel. That's what changes your life, right? And then it says this, having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory? You're getting a picture of that? Who can break the seal of God? No one. So if there's ever a question that comes up and somebody says, hey, well, if you're a Christian, can you really be demon-possessed? No, because the Holy Spirit dwells there. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. And no one can break that seal at all. No one. Is that a good thing? Is this battle for your soul? Well, there's an arrow number two. A battle for your heart in the supernatural world. Your love and devotion for Jesus. And this arrow can be better described if you knew some facts about Satan. So I want you to just bear with me because I believe not only is there a battle for your soul, meaning who's going to dwell there, but there's also a battle for your love and devotion to Jesus Christ because he's going to hit you in every way he can. Because anything, if anything, he doesn't want you close to the Lord. Do you believe that? He doesn't want you trusting him. He wants to put doubt in your mind. He wants to afflict you physically. Whatever it is, he wants to take you as far away from God as possible. The battle for your heart. So let me describe it for you, this arrow, particular arrow, with some facts about Satan. And the first thing, look at Matthew chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 25. Look what it says here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 through 28. Look what it says. Jesus knew their thoughts. It's, you know what? If Jesus was walking right next to me, I wouldn't want him to walk next to me. Because he knows every thought that's coming out of my mind. I just would, I would concentrate all day on just not thinking anything. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I love that. Jesus, is, here he is, God. And no matter, they don't have to say anything. The Pharisees don't have to say a word. And he goes, I knew their thoughts. I know what they're thinking. Woo. Here we go. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. He's saying, that doesn't make sense what you're saying, Pharisees. Why would Satan want to, in fact, divide himself? It doesn't make sense. What you're saying is, I, I can't get around that. It's in verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. And here's the thing I want you to know about Satan. How, can, how then can his kingdom stand? Did you catch that? So what is it saying? He has a kingdom. My friends, there's two kingdoms that are mentioned in the Bible, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for your heart. And these two kingdoms, we know in this, in this reference that he's giving us a little picture, if you will. Jesus is, is saying, look, this Satan has a kingdom. He's the ruler of that. He has power. He has authority. Now, keep your finger there, and I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Okay? Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 28. Remember, I'm trying to explain to you this arrow about your love and devotion. I, I think it best can be described when you understand who Satan is. Okay, here we go. Ezekiel chapter 28. What is about to be described, starting in verse 11, is Ezekiel comparing the king of Tyre to Satan. Because the king of Tyre is very prideful. He believes he's actually a god. And Ezekiel kind of puts it back. You know who you remind me of, king of Tyre? And actually, God is speaking through Ezekiel to say this to him. And look what he says in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign 
Lord says. And here's three attributes of Satan I want you to catch. It's going to be behind me too as well. You were the model of perfection. You want some misconceptions about Satan? Some people think and some people have in their mind that Satan was always evil. That's not the case. He's the model of perfection. He was in a place of great standing with the Lord. So it isn't like he was sitting there thinking, oh, he's always been evil. No, I think we have to remember that he, he, was, perfe- he was perfect in that sense. Look at the second thing it says. Model of perfection, full of wisdom. My friends, he was intelligent. He is intelligent. One author said, besides the Trinity, Satan is the most powerful being in existence. I believe that. He's intelligent. Did you know? And if you think that you're more smarter than he is, especially when it comes to sin and what you're, how you're acting out, if you think you're stronger than he is, you're a fool. He is intelligent. He knows what he's doing. And if anything, and back in Romans, it talks about principalities in Romans chapter 8. And literally, principalities mean there's levels of Satan, if you will, levels of, of actual demons with, with power. This, this person's in charge of this one. This person's in charge of this one. That's what principalities means. So we understand that Satan is organized. He's not chaotic. He throws chaos to us. But he's not chaotic. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's intelligent. Look at the rest of verse 13. And perfect in beauty. You ever have those pictures that you see of Satan and he's always ugly and he's just distorted face or he's got this beastly face? Yeah, you know, we probably get that from Revelation, but you know what? Satan is an angel of beauty. And what the word of God doesn't say is that he changed when he fell. Is he still beautiful? Doesn't he make sin beautiful? Boy, intelligent, beautiful, He's so beautiful. Look at verse 13. You were, from e- you were in Eden, the garden of God. Really quick, where was the garden of Eden? Genesis. All the way back in Genesis. Hey, you were walking with him. It was beautiful there. Go back, to, go back to Genesis. You'll find out there was a beautiful garden. And look what it says. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your setting and mountings were made of gold. And here's another thing I want you to understand about Satan. On the day you were created, they were prepared. My friends, we have to remember something. He's not a creator. He's a creation. And God is the one that created him. Now, you're saying, well, hold on. How can he create evil? He didn't create evil, remember? Because he was what? He was good. He was a model of perfection. Well, let's go on. You're going to find out some more. So he was anointed as a guardian cherub. You mean he was put into a high position. And the guardian cherub literally means that, he, look, he was a person of power. Angels have power, a supernatural power that you and I do not possess. So I ordained you. See, God put him in that place. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And look at verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till the wickedness was found in you. See, he was, he was right in standing with God. Look at verse 16. Though, you, though your widespread trade, and here it is, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fire stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty 
and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Did you see all that? Does he have a will? Do angels have a will? Yeah, you know why? Because he chose wickedness. This is what we have to make sure we're understanding. So we have this concept, not to glorify Satan anyway, because I'm going to get back to that arrow about devotion, your devotion to the Lord. But understand, he was created. He has a will. In Revelations, it talks about that he took a third of the angels with him. That means he's influential. Boy, just go read the garden, garden scene again. Is he influential? Boy, does he cast every doubt about who God is on Adam and Eve? You better believe he does. And his heart became proud. Now, I want you to see something, and bear with me here. Go back three books to Isaiah chapter 14. Keep your finger in Matthew. Isaiah chapter 14. Are you with me so far? Just say yes. yes. Okay. That just woke somebody up, so I just... Uh... <laughs> Isaiah chapter 14, look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, son of the dawn. My friends, that morning star can be translated Lucifer. We always see Lucifer as a negative already, but in this, in this particular context, Lucifer is good. He calls a morning star. You have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once lay low the nations. Now get this in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Did you find how many eyes were in there? Count them. There's five eyes. My friends, this is how he's going to attack your devotion to the Lord. You see, he was full of pride. And when that pride happens, what he wants to do to us is put pride at the epicenter of our heart. And if we have pride at the epicenter of our heart, selfishness is the only thing that comes out because it's all about you. Have you been to Barnes & Noble before and looked at the magazines? I, I, I want you to count next time how many magazines have to do with you. What you can do better. It's all about you. You can be rich. You can, it's all about you. My friends, every time the epicenter where you're devoted to God and that's moved over for your pride, I want you to see that permeates out to everything that you can think of in my marriage. Do you see pride in marriages? It's probably the number one reason. Forget all the other reasons why. Those are just uh, um, symptoms of the problem. Oh, I left my spouse because, you know, they weren't getting along. I, I just couldn't get along with her. And, you know, this person, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. It affects marriages. How does it affect your job? I, it's a pride thing going in there, your employment, how you deal with your kids, how you deal with your friends. No matter what, if that's the epicenter, guess what? Satan is doing his job. And that's an arrow that we have to think about because it's so supernatural. It's not only a battle for your soul, man. It's a battle for your heart all the time. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, it says this. He disguises himself 
as an angel of light. As an angel of light. You know, when we look at Matthew chapter 5, and it says, you are the light of the world. I want, you to, I want to give you a different impression of that verse. We are supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be, take on the sash that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm an ambassador for him. We're supposed to be in this, 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 the light of the world. I'm going to tell you guys, there's a lot of lights out there. There are a lot of lights out there. And some aren't authentic. Some that you know that he masquerades himself as an angel of light to take anyone, influence them away from who God is. And my friends, it should, if anything, encourage us. It should push us. Am I living the truth? When I put that sash on in the morning that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, am I living that truth? Am I an authentic light to my community, my neighbors? Am I prepared to answer those questions of why I'm so different? Man, that just, just pushes me, encourages me when I know that he's disguised himself as an angel of light, that it pushes me as a believer, and, and I want to push you as a church, then you know what? We better make sure that light is strong. We better make sure that light is solid. Do you agree? Yes. Well, not only does Satan aim his arrows at the supernatural world, but also the physical world. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. 12 with me. And look at verse 23 to 24. Satan throws arrows at the not only the supernatural but the physical world. And here's arrow number three. Pollute the truth about Jesus. Look what happens. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? You see, I want you to underline that because that was just another name for who the Messiah is. That's just a synonym. They're asking, could this be the Messiah? Could he be coming from the line of David? Could this be? Here he's healing. He's got the power to cast out demons. Could this be Jesus, the Messiah? Could, I, could this be the one who takes the sins of the world away? Could this be the one who's going to help us with oppression? And, but look at verse 24. But, and this is, the, this is the only time I'll say it. That's a big but. That's going to be a big but. You know why? Because immediately, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The Pharisees used Beelzebub, which is a Canaanite deity. Okay, he's saying, this is a Canaanite deity, but you know what? They made it synonymous with Satan. So actually he's saying, you know, this person, this fella, according to NIV translation, this fella is an agent of Satan. And you just see how quickly it changed. Here's this inquiry about Jesus. Could this be? Could this be? But immediately, there's the big but. No way. No way. My friends, when Satan's arrow is to pollute the truth about Jesus, to take us far away from who he is, and I'm telling you this right now, even as Christians, I hear a different definition of who Jesus is, and I'm telling you, it's not scriptural. I'm like, you know what, that Jesus is fashioned, they're almost fashioning Jesus to who they are, their lifestyle. See, Jesus accepts me. And they're, they're saying it's okay, or they're becoming, they're just modeling him, putting this, I feel like it's, here's this lump of clay, and, and they're just starting modeling who, this is the Jesus. That, no, 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 no. We got to get back to the word of God to find out who he is.
The question I have for you, where are you drawing your conclusions about Jesus? Is it God's word? Is it Wikipedia? <laughs> where are we drawing our conclusions? And let me, let me uh, show up a, a verse here. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to just read it silent with me because, man, this better, <laughs> this just gets me excited. Look at behind me, it says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth, are things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is that the Jesus you believe in? My friends, this is where we need to get who Jesus is. And as soon as we start defining him outside of scripture, guess what? He can't be the Jesus that is said right here. He can't be the truth. And this is why I plead with you as a congregation, every time I have a chance to be up here, this needs to be a love letter that you want to go to in the morning. Every day, it is a love letter to you. Put your name not only inside and say, God, this is to Andy from God because this is a love letter to you telling you, sharing with you who he is. And my friends, this is the only book I know that can transform your life. Do you agree with that? Transform your life. And you heard me say it before, if God's word isn't transforming your life, then something else is we got to make sure that Satan, he wants to pollute the truth about Jesus. But I, I, my friends, let's just make sure that we are <laughs> guarding against that, bringing God's word. Here's arrow number four. The focus on religion rather than Jesus. The focus on religion rather than Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. I want you to see what's happening. This whole entire chapter, the Pharisees are after Jesus to test him. And look what happens at that time. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. In verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. I love this. Jesus is such the master communicator. He answered, Haven't you read? Remember, Pharisees are very versed in Old Testament. Haven't you read Dave, what David did when he, was, and he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, dedicated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? He, what he's saying here is this. You're missing it. You're focusing on the law here. You see, the necessity is that they're hungry, right? But the thing I want you to see, especially in this passage, is this. Jesus, being just the master communicator, says, uh, okay, you know what? I know that was an act on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any type of act, right? Uh-oh. 
You're not supposed to do any type of act. Jesus is saying, look, you know, even the priests, you know, when they do the, all the sacrificing, what are they doing? They're working. And he's saying, hey, you know what? If you're really going to condemn them, come on. Then you should condemn the priests. You see, you're missing the, the focus here. The focus is that you're focusing so much on the law that you can't focus and have focus on the person who is in need. You see, it's superseded. So why don't you be like who I am? Look what the next verse says. He goes in verse 6, I tell you, the one greater than the temple, all those rituals, all those laws, the one greater than the temple is here. In verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, and he quotes Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would, you would not have condemned the innocent, but look what he says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath He's saying, he brings up Hosea 6, 6 because of this. He's like, you know what? The law hasn't taught you mercy. It's not doing its job, but I can. See, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, when religion becomes a focus, the way we do certain things, we lose sight of the focus of who Christ is. You see, we've got to have to have it this way. Oh, no, we have to take communion every week. Have to. No, you're, you're missing it. Come on. You know, when we get into this mind thing that it becomes a to-do list, like I have to do this. Well, see, you know, God wants me to do this and that. No, 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 no. Let's get back to if I'm in love with Jesus, I want to be obedient. You see, it's not a list of to-dos. Don't do this and don't do that. My love for God will, <laughs> will if we do, produce uh, everything that comes out of me it would be indicative. Every action that I do is indicative of my love for God and my love for him, period. People say, well, Andy, um, do, you, do you believe that, you know, you're, you're going to have, if you do this sin, you'll never be forgiven? Or I'm like, yeah, you know what? I know God's going to forgive me, but you know what? I love the Lord so much. I don't want to hurt him. Look at verses 12, 9 through 13. Not only are the, the Sadducees going after eating on the Sabbath, they go, they ask him another question about healing on the Sabbath. And look what he says. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man, was, a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 11, he said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and was completely restored, just as sound as the other. In verse 14, listen to the response. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You see, the arrow is this. They're missing the point. They still think the law can change their heart. And the only thing that can change somebody's heart is Jesus. Only thing. You know, we started with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, that said, you will encounter flaming arrows from the evil one. And in the supernatural realm and in the physical realm, we will encounter those arrows. 
Because no matter what, when we experience Jesus, we will experience his opponent. So what do we do? Let me just take a couple minutes to say, what do we do then? Because this is a message, a different message altogether. But let me just highlight some things, and uh, uh, the church will continue an hour longer in the patio. Um, what do we do? First thing is this, in 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, don't seek the battle. The battle will come to you. You know, I was, I was, I was uh, watching TV, and I was hearing this evangelist, and he was saying, you guys, go out there. Christians, go battle. Go into battle. Go battle Satan. Find him wherever he is. You know what? Jesus never said that. You know what? The battle's coming to you. You don't have to worry about it. It's coming to you. It's coming to your home country. It's coming to your heart. The second thing is, in Ephesians 6.10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. There was power in the name of Jesus. Depend on God's strength. You can't do it alone. You will not do it alone. And the last part of Ephesians 6.13-18, and I'm going to read this portion to you, but the last thing is this. Clothe yourself with the weapons God has issued. Clothe yourself with the weapons that God has issued. And I love this, and I put this on the screen for this reason, because I just want you to see this version of it, because I think the Message Bible did a fantastic job of wrapping it up. Listen to this. God is strong, and he wants you strong. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to you so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple days. For this is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over, but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. I love this. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirit up so that no one falls behind or drops out. Isn't that incredible? What incredible words. Let me leave you with this quote. Talking of Jesus. Let us kiss his scepter anew and bow the knee in the presence of his supernal majesty and say, all hail the power of Jesus' name. My friends, when you experience Jesus, you will encounter his opponent. Be ready. But you have Jesus living inside your heart. Man, I hope that excites you. You have the power of the living God at your fingertips. Let's pray. God, I pray that we'd understand these arrows that are aiming toward us. God, that the arrows are, are will come. The battle is going to come to us. That battle is on our, on our grounds. God, I pray that we would recognize that there's, there's something happening supernaturally that Satan is trying to just work. And God is not only doing it super, in the supernatural world, he's doing it in the physical world. And God, I pray that we would take up the full armor of God 
so we can stand strong. God, I pray that we would understand who you are. We can't just think that you're some kind of being that doesn't have any relationship with us, but Lord, you've empowered us. And God, when we believed in you for salvation, you came into our hearts and you dwell there. And God, nothing, nothing will break that seal. It is the promised Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for those that are still wondering. I, I you know what? I, I, I'm still wondering what kingdom I need to be loyal to. I, I need to find out who Jesus is. And I, Lord, maybe you're talking to their heart right now. And if that's you, I, I would ask you just to listen to this prayer. God, I need you. I'm in need of a savior. God, the sin that's in this world is, God, that I, I'm a sinner. I fall short of everything that you, you require. But Lord, I believe that you came down to die for my sin. I believe that you came down and now you live, you'll live in me if I just believe in your name and know that you rose from the dead. God, I pray that we would be excited about that new relationship. God, now they're possessed by you. God, you live inside their heart. God, help us to trust you. Help us to rely on your strength. In your name. Thank you.